Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Everything Else, the culture podcast from the Financial Times. In this episode, we're going to look at how Netflix is reshaping the entire film industry. Why was everybody talking about it at the Cannes Film Festival last week? And has Netflix got too big and too powerful? And after that, we're going to be talking to the writer, Rennie Edo-Lodge. She's just published her first book. It's called Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. We're Griselda and John, and that's what we have for you this week. So the Palm Door has just been announced on Sunday, the Cannes Film Festival, the film industry's biggest sort of get together and celebration has just ended. And this is the first year Netflix has been admitted into the competition with not one but two films. Yep. Bong Joon-ho's Okja starring Tilda Swinton and Noah Baumbach's The Meyerowitz Stories. Both of those were shown in competition at Cannes. They did not win anything, which is something that we'll be discussing later and why that might be. Because, yeah, this this narrative of Netflix versus Cannes has been huge this year. Yeah, there's been a lot of ding-dong between the traditionalists and the digital disruptors. And the French and the Americans, sort of like two sides pitted against each other in this big row that could define the future of the film industry. So, Griselda, in a nutshell, what has sparked this massive, massive argument? So, basically, French law is pretty inflexible definitely compared to American law, it states that if a film is shown in cinema, it can't then be screened on TV for three years. Obviously, this does not suit Netflix's model, which is content immediately straight to television. So Netflix doesn't want to have to wait for three years after showing its films on French cinema, so it has decided not to show the films that it's showing at Cannes in France in just normal cinemas. That has caused huge row. So, the Spanish filmmaker Pedro Almodovar, who was on one of the jury panels, said, The size of a film should not be smaller than the chair on which you are sitting. And Will Smith, who was another member of the jury, in this press conference, which was traditionally a pretty boring affair, but got quite heated this year at Cannes. So he took exception to this and he said, Netflix has had absolutely no effect on what my children go to the movie theatre to watch. It has broadened my children's global cinematic comprehension. Controversially, Bong Joon-ho then weighed into the debate and he said he didn't mind at all if people couldn't see his film in theatres. He said, if it looks good on the big screen, it will look good on the small screen, i.e. your mobile phone or laptop. Ooh, and this is not something that everybody agrees upon. No, that pissed a lot of people off. Next came Jake Gyllenhaal, one of the stars of Okja. He disagreed. He said, so everyone at the premiere can sit and watch it on their phones? He's not sure. Meanwhile, the Netflix chief, Reed Hastings, proclaimed that the establishment is closing ranks against us. So lots of back and forth. And with us to discuss all of this and what it means for the future of film is Raphael Abraham, our colleague who has just got back from Cannes. Very jealous. He spent about a week there. 
Yeah, you might remember Raf from Series 1. He appeared on our Oscars podcast. Yep, a resident film buff. And also with us is another friend of the pod, Peter Aspden, who writes about film and arts for the FT. Raf and Peter, thank you for joining us. Hi. Hi. Raf, so you were present amid all of this hoo-ha at Cannes. Can you describe the atmosphere a bit? What was it like being there? I was present, yeah. I was at two screenings of the Netflix films, the press screenings. It's not unusual for people to boo in Cannes, but it's quite unusual for people to boo before the film's actually started. So <laughs> the Netflix logo appeared on the screen and people started booing immediately. This um, is for Okia. So at the screening of Okia, yeah, mm. it happened both times, but just a, a few smatterings, you know, a bit of booing and <laughs> Light a few, booing. Be, few cheers as well, actually, you know, right. to balance it out. Okay. Like a football match or something, people were already taking sides. <laughs> but then um, the film started up and there was more booing and it quickly became clear why, because everyone's heads were cut off. So Tilda Swinton, you could hear Tilda Swinton talking, but you couldn't actually see her mouth or see her face. So the booing grew louder and louder and then there was whistling and jeering and foot stamping and people started shouting. But it had nothing to do with Netflix at all. It had to do with the projectionist having screwed up and... Which, and there was uh, gossip about this being an act of sabotage. Right? Yeah, exactly. So everyone <laughs> immediately was speculating that, you know, either oh, this gosh. was somehow can getting its own back on, on Netflix or Netflix somehow giving us a taste of what watching films on small screens was going to look like or something like that. <laughs> so either way, it sort of came to encapsulate the conflict. It did, but very mischievously, a lot of journalists or websites reported this booing as somehow being due to the Netflix debate, whereas in fact it had much more to do with just a projection cock-up for which Can quickly apologised. And so, Peter, where do you kind of draw your line on the, I'm, in this? I'm kind of in the middle, on the fence, all over the place. I think uh, <laughs> I think it's very interesting. I, I just wanted to say, firstly, it's terribly difficult for people who cover the Cannes Film Festival because they have to persuade editors that they're not spending all their time on the beach uh, looking at starlets and all those traditional... Yeah, Raph has a lovely tan. Recreation. Yeah, you're glowing. <laughs> yeah, just, so when something even hints at blowing up, it does blow up and, you know, it's just settling newspapers, really. And I personally love the idea of anything that makes an arts event more like a football match because uh, <laughs> it shows that people care. Look, Cannes Film Festival, it's all about French, French culture, French, you know, French have a president who who's able to quote large chunks of Moliere while he's being interviewed by a journalist, which if an American <laughs> or British head of state would do would probably seem sink 10 points in the opinion. Of France, you know. <laughs> France is a very particular and I think admirable view towards its culture. And I rather like the idea that Cannes Film Festival only films that are theatrically released in France. That's fine. That's okay. There are a lot of festivals around. Festivals in any case are a kind of weird throwback. They're very 20th but century. But can, you know. Cannes meant to be one of the film events of the year. Do you it, not think it gets well, a little bit kind of small fry yeah, if you start look, everyone, banning Netflix and we all so look, on? It is and it isn't. Everyone covers it and everyone dutifully writes features about it. And the film festival press conference has become a kind of great theatrical event of our time, you know, because those things matter less and less these days because of things going viral and memes and whatever. So to have this press conference where somebody, you're hoping someone like Lars von Trier is going to come up with something outrageous and then that fuels the cultural mm. agenda for the next few weeks, the whole thing is a little bit of a game. It's a little bit anachronistic. I don't think we need to worry about too much. And, and you know, 
if you talk to people in the real world, you know, people outside our rarefied <laughs> Not circles, can. they've got no idea what's playing at Cannes. I mean, they have a clue, you know. I agree with you in many ways. I like the French approach to the culture, you know, they, the way they try to sort of, you know, Very protect protective. it and, and, you know, give it, give it a leg up. But as one of the French distributors pointed out, if only film screened theatrically in France were allowed to play in Cannes, does that mean in Berlin, Sundance, Toronto, San Sebastian, all these other festivals around the world. Are, are French films all going to guarantee a theatrical release in those countries to be accepted? No. No, they're not. No. So it's it's sort of one rule for the French and another rule for everyone That's else. So okay. it's fine for That's them okay. to take Which their culture. Which is quite often abroad. how it works. <laughs> yeah, but France. it's supposed why, to be, Cannes is supposed to be an international film festival, so yeah. it has to embrace films that are released theatrically in other parts of the world as well. So Okia is being released in Korean cinemas. It's not being released in French cinemas. I have issues with that too. Yeah. But... This French cultural exception, it only obviously applies to French films. Yeah, so with, with Brexit, I've had enough of kind of inward-looking cultural exceptionism. Yeah, but it just <laughs> makes it a little bit special, and they're making a point, and, you know, let them make a point. I don't think there's any harm, you know, as far as the Netflix v. can is concerned. I think we live in this extraordinarily fertile cultural universe where everyone's trying everything. I mean, Netflix, it's a business model. It's being a disruptor, to use the, one of the words of the... Toujours. Yeah, <laughs> toujours. Thank you. Thank you for that. French, yeah. And so, you know, they're having a go at putting their fingers everywhere, as are Amazon, as are, you know, these are kind of... These are big corporate entities yeah. just trying to trying to try well, to. So do, you, do you welcome this kind of disruption, Raf? What's your view well, on I think Netflix's it, the thing place? Is, yeah. it, you know, they're both trying to have it both ways in a way. So Netflix, on the one hand, want to be part of this massive cinematic showcase and you know be in competition. On the other hand, they don't really want to have to pay for exhibitors and distributors. You know, they want the content just going out on their platform. On the other hand, we all know that can. To a large extent, as you say, you know, nobody really cares about the tiny films that are showing there. They want big stars on the red carpet. So mm. they knew they were getting Tilda Swinton, Jake Gyllenhaal from Okia. They were getting from Ben Stiller. From these Netflix films. Yeah. 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 Adam Sandler and all these people from the Meyerowitz stories, their other film there. It's a slightly disingenuous sort of approach to say, well, we, you know, we want these films, but we don't really want them either, you know. So we'll, I think they'll come so they to some... they want each other. Exactly. It's a mutually beneficial relationship. It's a beautiful thing about the French that they're, they're so cerebral, yet they're so easily seduced by glamour. I mean, that's one of the great things about them, isn't it? <laughs> well, we this app can encapsulate that absolutely 100%. <laughs> so, so beyond France and Cannes, what good does Netflix do for the film industry? They've recently pledged to make 50 movies a year, which is a huge amount far outstripping a lot of the yeah. major studios. What good does Netflix do? Well, the, the thing that they are currently doing is that they are filling the gap left by the big studios having basically just adjusted into making Fast very and the few Furious, enormous... Fast something like Yeah, exactly, <laughs> sort of $100 million-plus films, you know, which they can license and market and, you know, milk for, for every dollar they're worth and stop making these kind of mid-budget films, which uh, sort of in the you know, 5 to 20, 30, 40, 50 even million dollar bracket. Guys like Netflix are stepping in, Amazon are, are getting into this as well. So lots of people, creative people in the industry are, are really, you know, are, are delighted and have got nothing 
and Netflix know, the good things can do this because they obviously have a different model. So they're relying on subscription rather than massive opening weekend box office hits, which is what the kind of mid-budget films will never be. Yeah, and if you take Okja, that was pitched to traditional film distributors and no one kind of picked it up. That was made for 55 million right. US dollars or something. Right. And Netflix came and filled that gap. And they did. it's a good film, right? It's good. It's very fun. It's kind of more for a younger audience. I'm not entirely sure what it was doing in the Cannes competition, but the current head of Cannes, Thierry Frémaux, is quite accepting of more populist movies. And in fact, the guy who made it, Bong Joon-ho, his Korean director, had a horrible experience with his last film, Snowpiercer, which was also a great, really entertaining, big-budget kind of movie. But he got into trouble with Harvey Weinstein, who wanted to cut the film heavily. So he had an awful experience with that, and in the end it didn't get very good release anywhere. So he's saying... I made my film with Netflix. This time I had no trouble. I had final cut, no problems at all. And he's he's delighted. The guys actually making the films are generally very pro-Netflix. There is a problem, though, here, because, I mean, they, the directors might be pro-Netflix, but I wonder whether they do mind that their films, if Netflix don't want them to go to the cinema, these films, which are made as movies, not as TV, will only be seen on TV-sized screens. Mm. Peter, what do you think of that? Do you think it's sad not to be able to see something? It absolutely depends what it is. I would never want to see a film like Gravity on a TV, TV screen. And by the way, TV screens, it kind of evaded your notice, are getting very, very big. <laughs> and there are lots of people who like, like the, the 55-inch... They're getting uh, very big, but also very small. I mean, you can watch it on a phone. So, you can watch you know, it on a phone, yeah. yeah I mean, they go both ways. You can probably watch it on a, a watch, presumably, well, by you now. You could probably watch a f- sort of feeble film like The King's Speech or something on a phone, and that wouldn't kind of... <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, but uh, you know, Marshall McLuhan made this distinction between a hot medium and a cold medium. Cinema was a hot medium in that it was a darkened room and completely dominated you in a very sensory manner and you had to concentrate. You didn't really have any choice. Television is not. Television is people coming in and out making cups of tea. Oh, can you just pause it now? Oh, I missed that bit. What did he say? You know, it's a very different relationship between the viewer and the work. That's thing Polanski said at Cannes. He was like, he remembered when um, the Walkman and the tape came out and everyone was saying, this is the end of concerts. Of course it's not. People enjoy going to the cinema. I don't think yeah. that's going to stop you know, Netflix or no Netflix. No, yeah. but if Netflix is saying they will not show their films in the cinema, then that will have an effect, surely. Well, this is the thing. This is the, tr- the trouble I have with it, is that they're actually taking choice away from people. It's not about, is Netflix a bad thing or a good thing? And, you know, nobody's saying we don't want to watch films on Netflix. It's just... We also want to have that choice of seeing things in the cinema. And the irony is that Okia is this film about a bloody great 20-ton pig the size of a hippo, (laughs) right? So you get this real, it's a massive scale film. He shot it in this format that's the equivalent equivalent of 70 millimetres. So it's it's vast, right? Too big to even fit on the can screen, apparently. (laughs) And yet the only people who are going to ever see that film on a cinema screen are those people who are booing in Cannes or... Mm. Yeah. South Korea. <laughs> yeah. So of the director all the films, doesn't care. He himself has said he doesn't mind if you, if it's good on the big screen. It's good on your phone. Yeah. As well, well there you cares. Go. I care. I, <laughs> I want to see. And Peter cares. Nonsense. I mean, I, I do think that's nonsense. You know, let's talk about something positive about television, which is. I still think the people who really revolutionised everything was HBO, who suddenly started introducing a, a grade of quality which had never been seen before on television. You know, by making people get used to that long-form narrative, which starts from The Sopranos and carries on through The Wire and everything, maybe that's had a feedback into cinema to make more artful films. 
Look, I think we're all agreed that definitely there's a lot of quality TV being made these days. But I think there's also an understanding that, that film and TV are very different media, right? This long form, which which is sort of much talked about, mm. is, yes, many times it's a good thing. In other, other times it's the series start, they start very strong, then they're commissioned for more and more series, they drag on. On the other hand, yeah, you've got lots of people being enticed to make TV series. Um, so directors moving so from mo- film to yeah, TV. So film directors, yeah. yeah, being enticed by money and flexibility and lots of stars interested in working on the, in these shows. Also, a lot of the time they are not necessarily anymore in quite working at their peak. So, you know, Woody Allen famously made oh. his first TV series, Terrible. which was an absolute, <laughs> absolutely <laughs> a complete mess. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of talk of, oh, this is the golden age of TV and look, all these film people are migrating, ditching film and moving to TV and TV is the new film and all this sort of thing, which is often these things, I think, are said by people who only watch very low-grade, big studio blockbusters and don't necessarily watch lots of other kinds of film. Okay, guys, so where do we think the future of cinema is heading? And it's probably worth pointing out that cinema attendances actually rose in France last year. But is down everywhere else quite good. <laughs> <laughs> it's working, isn't it? Whatever the French, the French, French you know, they're, they're, you know, France is the cinema country, really, which is why well, I quite like the stance that Cannes is taking. And I think cinema, you know, I think it's, I think it's still in pretty healthy shape. I think it might become divided. We will get these blockbusters and more and more superhero movies because they're playing to the young demographic. They're the people who have time to and money increasingly to go to the cinema and eat their buckets of popcorn and and watch people smash each other up. And then maybe the other branch will become sort of a, a much more niche product and, and almost a nostalgic product, you know, the art cinema. Already you see this, you know, where you get freshly brewed coffee and uh, <laughs> all that kind of poncy stuff, you know, where you'll be able to see your art film. And then a few that'll kind of hit the middle, a kind of a rom-com that might break out because it's better than most. But it, it's all good. Love, actually. No, that's not the one I was thinking. <laughs> I think the worry with this is, though, that it becomes quite expensive to go to the cinema because the, the number of people actually going and buying tickets is falling. The tickets, they've put the prices of the tickets up. Yeah. So, you know, if this continues, it will become almost like a sort of luxury thing to do, a sort of trip to the cinema. It's like going to the West End or, you know, to see a play. Of course, it needs to find its demand-supply balance, but they seem to be, you know, when I go to Westfield and walk around there, it's they seem to be thriving and full and buzzing mm. and in and rude health. And also, do we not think Netflix will sort this out? Like, with any digital disruptor, the early days, there are always kind of loads of hiccups on the way. Think of Uber and how many problems they've had in the past few years. Netflix, I'm sure, will start showing their films, you know, in all cinemas, including France. I'm not sure about that. I think, you know, the kind of the battle lines have been drawn and they've now got to sort of work this out with Cannes. I mean, the French laws are ridiculously antiquated. I mean, three years to wait between showing your film in the cinema and having it on TV is just ridiculous. In terms of the future of cinema, I think, you know, cinema always has always found a way of reinventing itself. You know, people said, oh, talkies would never catch on colour. You know, when TV came along, people thought, yeah, exactly. That was the big disruptor, much bigger than this, I think. And it found, you know, a new way. At the same time, movie attendances pre-TV were extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. I don't think we're going back to those days. My dad anyway. used to go religiously three times a week to the cinema. Yeah, I was, I've and, got yeah. a stat here from 1946, which yeah. is that 78 million Americans yeah. went every week at least once yeah. to the cinema. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's, that's, that's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so if that was peak cinema, but, yeah. then clearly we're in a, in a decadent phase now. It's all a kind of confused jumble, but I think good things are coming out of it. And, you know, what I look forward to more than anything is... 
people talking about content again. But let's get back to sort of, you know, championing of directors and being foreign against, like a football match, you know, like those French New Wave guys, you know, you either loved yeah. Nicolas Ray or you hated him and you argued about it and you didn't really worry about where it showed. And that's what it's all about. It's like treacle is poured into their ears, blocking up their ear canals. It's like they can no longer hear us. The journey towards understanding structural racism still requires people of colour to prioritise white feelings. Who really wants to be alerted to a structural system that benefits them at the expense of others? The options are speak your truth and face the reprisal, or bite your tongue and get ahead in life. I cannot continue to emotionally exhaust myself trying to get this message across. Their intent is often not to listen or learn, but to exert their power, to prove me wrong, to emotionally drain me, and to rebalance the status quo. So next up, we have the British writer Rennie Edo-Lodge. She's a journalist and she writes about structural racism, uh, feminism. John, you've been reading her for a while. When did you kind of first get into her work? Yeah, recently she's been on every kind of best of under 30 person for this, that and the other under the sun. But she's she actually, a hot young writer. Yeah, yeah, she's really, yeah, she's quite amazing. She's been listed in Elle's 100 Inspirational Women list, The Roots 30 Black Viral Voices Under 30. There are tons more. But um, she really came to prominence in 2014. She wasn't that well known back then. And it's worth pointing out, yeah, she's still in her late 20s. She wrote a yeah. blog post entitled Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. So punchy title. Yeah, super punchy title. It was basically about why she was breaking off from the conversation because of all the hostility and defensiveness she encountered whenever she tried to talk about structural racism. So people were still kind of denying the existence of this, yeah. despite a lot of factual evidence, overwhelmingly. Exactly. So she wrote this blog post. She had a huge, huge response, a lot of it from white people a lot of kind of people in denial about the problem. And since then, she's gone on to write this amazing book, which is just out. And like you said, she goes through all of the data and she kind of goes through the history of structural racism in this country, as well as inserting some of her own personal story throughout it. How does the book compare to the blog post? So I've read the, the blog post. I haven't yet read the book, which has just come out. But yeah, the blog post is copy. pretty like... It's very well written. It's very kind of clear. It's journalistic, but without the sort of journalistic flourishes. Yeah, so the blog post actually opens the book. It doesn't really continue in that vein. It become it does become more academic. It's not... So like Ta-Nehisi Coates' books, The Beautiful Struggle and Between the World and Me, they are more personal than this book is. Right. I think this could have a similar impact in the UK as Ta-Nehisi Coates had over in the US. And he's kind of considered one of the most powerful black voices in literary America today. He also writes for The Atlantic. And so what you're hoping for with this book, and I, I guess with the publishers and what Rennie herself is hoping for, is for something like that. That kind of impact. Yeah. So here she is, Rennie Edo-Lodge. I think that the first point in my life when I realised that race was a thing, I wouldn't say that I knew what structural racism was, because I was a child, but was when I was very, very young, so younger than the age of six. And I went to my mum, this is when it was just me and her and in our council flat in South London, and I said, Mum, when am I going to turn white? And she was very confused. She's like, well, I don't understand why you're saying this. What do you mean? And I was like, well, all the good people that I'm watching on TV are white and everybody who's bad isn't white, so... I know I'm a good person, so when am I going to turn white? And I had the plan in my head. 
I was going to be white, I was going to be very pale, I was going to have red hair and green eyes, and I even used to draw myself like that. She had to explain to me that that, that was not something that was going to happen. That was the first time in my life I realised, OK, humanity is coded as white. For those first early years of my life, it was me and my mum in a council flat in South London, and it was just me and her, and I quite liked having all the attention. But then she met my stepdad, and we moved to Tottenham, and now have a brother and sister. I was definitely an avid reader, and an early one. My mum's the sort of parent who likes to go around telling everybody that I was reading at four years old, <laughs> which was mostly just shampoo bottles at the time. I was reading out shampoo bottles. And yeah, I was always an avid reader. And, and unfortunately, it's, it's something that I dropped by the time I got to secondary school because, you know, I wanted to be cool and it wasn't cool to read. <laughs> So I went to the University of Central Lancashire. I took a module on the transatlantic slave trade in my second year. And I also had a friend who, we weren't great friends, but, you know, sort of like friendship of, of proximity, who was white and British. And so we took this class together. And I was, like, so engaged with this class. I was like, oh, my God, this is blowing my mind. What on earth? And she was totally disinterested and dropped out really quickly. Well, I was really angry with her looking back it sort of made me think she thinks that this history is not relevant to her but surely Britain's legacy of racism and, and Britain's active role is relevant to all of us you know other countries are much more upfront about their misdeeds but Britain really isn't So I started my blog in my second year of university. I remember one of the first pieces that I wrote, I was watching The Apprentice, this was in 2010, and Stella English had won. I remember a task where she was the only woman on an all-male team other than her, and uh, they had designed a sort of like beach accessory. And instead of hiring a model to model the beach accessory, the men basically pressured her to strip down into a bikini and model it because they're like, well, you're a woman and we find you attractive, so this is something that you should do. And I remember just feeling really distressed by that, like kind of outraged, like this is a clear example of sexism. Like, wow. And I, I remember talking to my flatmate about it at the time and she was like, oh, Rennie, you're always making a big deal out of things. Like you always read too much into stuff. So I was like, okay, there's clearly nobody in my immediate vicinity who recognised what I just saw. So I blogged about it. And I remember I tweeted it, 42 people read it. And I was like, wow, oh my God, like people actually agree with me on this. It's not just in my head. Once I pressed publish on the blog post, the people who were getting in touch were in two camps. There was first the people who weren't white camp. And they were sort of going, oh, my God, thank you. You finally articulated this. I've been wanting to say this for so long. But there's all these reasons why I'm not able to say it. And then there was another response. Let's say the white response, even though these are really crude categories, right? <laughs> and this response is very much like, oh, my God, this is a tragedy. This is really, really sad. Please don't give up. Please don't give up. And almost like this sort of like self-flagellation and I was a bit like, well, this is not the response I was hoping for. In fact, I didn't write it to 
provoker, like this feeling of self-hatred in white people. I felt like that was evident of the same communication gap because in that response was still, it was about them, you know? I think primarily, I hope that the book serves as catharsis first and foremost for people who are desperately feeling the sharp end of this sort of injustice, but are struggling to find the language to, you know, articulate that injustice. I knew I needed to write something that was part what I was thinking, but but very much evidence-based about the big picture of what race and racism looks like in this country. And what I find speaking to people who are not affected directly by racism is a great deal of fear. Oh God, I'm terrified I'm going to say the wrong thing. I'm so scared. I'm this, I'm that. When we think about what racism looks like in this country, we think of interpersonal prejudice, nastiness, violence, perhaps. But we don't think about how racism basically infects equal opportunity. So in the book, I basically map out the life chances of a hypothetical black boy. We now know for a fact that a black boy is three times as likely as the rest of his school population to be excluded from school. When it gets to SATS level, so year six, black children are chronically undermarked by their own teachers, and that's something that's actually rectified by anonymous marking. We know that when it comes to employment, people with African and Asian-sounding names are far less likely to be called to interview than they're, than people with white-sounding names. Even if you are in that job market, there's a, actually a racial wage gap that widens with qualifications. So that the idea that if you just, you know, get yourself educated, then you can sort of transcend racism is not true. You could take all of those statistics one of two ways, right? So you can either say, well... The reason why black people aren't doing well in the country's institutions is because they're inherently inferior. Or you can say, wow, there's this extreme structural racism problem in our society that we are yet to address. Racism and bolstering white people's life chances is a yin and yang situation. It is a relationship. It's not that somebody can be underprivileged without somebody else being privileged, you know, but whenever we talk about people being underprivileged or disadvantaged. We don't talk about who is advantaged in relation to that. So there's a section in the book where I take on the term the white working class. And I essentially say that it's really insidious to suggest that working class people in this country are all white. The way that it's being used at the moment as though it's white and working class people are an extremely persecuted minority is almost being used in opposition to struggles for race equality. When I went back in the book and looked at who was using this phrase in like the mid 2000s, it was the far right British National Party. But now it's used in a much more mainstream way. And also, if you are somebody who's been born in Britain but isn't white, you're actually much more likely <laughs> to be born into poverty. You're much less likely to be wealthy. I know for a fact that people have already started to have quite reactionary responses to the title and the cover alone. But what I wanted to do 
with the title was really make it an unapologetic decentering of whiteness. Now that might sound a little bit academic, but I'm somebody who, through my consumption of fiction and film and media, has learned to sort of even interpret the world via white eyes. Like every protagonist of every film and every fiction that I watch and read is almost white as a default. Like we see white as neutral, right? If we read a declarative sentence, we assume that a white person is saying it unless stated otherwise. And what I wanted with this title was for that not to be the case. I didn't want anybody... There's no way that you can read that title and assume that a white person wrote it, you know? One thing that I'm finding is that people are feeling quite... Well, some people are feeling very threatened by it. I mean, I don't think that it's even that much of a controversial title. It doesn't say uh, death to the white man, you know? (laughs) But I sometimes worry that people are looking at that title and going, wow, that's what it says. But the word why suggests an explanation, right? I think if you feel threatened, examine those feelings, you know? I hope that the book prompts some some self-examination. That's all for this week. Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race by Rennie Edo Lodge is out now and published by Bloomsbury. Griselda, you're going to go out and buy it, right? Oh, I'm going to borrow your copy, yeah. So you're not going to buy it, okay. (laughs) Well, everyone else, please buy it. It's a very, very good book. Next week is, of course, the UK general election, and we are going to be discussing the idea of dystopia and why it's back in fashion in our politically turbulent times. We'll also hear from the artist Comrade Shawcross. We went to his studio to speak to him about his mechanical sculptures with a sinister edge. And you can subscribe to everything else on iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a single episode. And you can listen online at ft.com slash everything else. Everything else is produced by Chica Ayres. We've been John Sonia and Griselda Murray-Brown, and our music is composed and produced by Fatim. Fatim.